This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. to the Future of Finance podcast. I'm Sam and today I am joined by Simon Haslam, the Group CEO of Network International. Welcome, Simon. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for inviting me. Nice to talk to you. You too. And Simon, last time we saw each other was a dinner in a, in a lovely restaurant in Dubai. And it does feel like an awfully long time ago for, well, firstly, the reason it was a long time ago, but also how much the world has changed. We've talked about a number of things in the lead up to this conversation. There are a few areas I would love to dig deep on, particularly some of the experiences you guys have gone through in the last six months at Network International. But before we get there, let's talk a bit about your career. You've had 35 plus years of experience in the payments and banking sector. Today, you're the group CEO of Network International. Formerly, you were the CEO and president of Elevon. And prior to that, you've had a number of different banking positions at City and and HSBC. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences leading to today and how it is in Dubai? Yeah, sure. You make me sound very old, Sam. Very experienced. (laughs) (laughs) Experienced with grey hair. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've been a network now since January 2017. I came here from Elevon. And as you said, Elevon is one of the largest acquiring companies globally based out of Atlanta in Georgia in the US. So I've gone from one hot and steamy climate to an even hotter and more steamier climate. And I guess I've been around for a while and probably the last 20 years or so I've worked in payments and I sort of fell into payments accidentally actually when I was at Citigroup. And my boss said that City was starting a, an acquiring business in Europe and come and help him out. And I said, well, what's acquiring? And I've never even heard of it and, you know, slipped into it. I've been here ever since. You know, when I started at City, I was looking after risk, sort of credit risk, operational risk, and spent six months understanding how risk worked in the acquiring space and all the various chargeback permutations. And I've been here ever since. I must admit, you know, I, I love it even today just because it's in a constant source of change. Nothing ever stands still. The payments industry is always changing. It's very dynamic. And I think anyone that tells you that they know absolutely everything about payments is probably exaggerating because it changes so much. You've just given us the comparison of your professional experiences network to Elevon and, and actually Dubai to Atlanta. How different is it building a payments business in Dubai? I say that because Having been to Atlanta a few times, it's it's the US's payments capital of the country. Something like 70% of payments runs through Atlanta. Yet Dubai is one of the fastest moving places on the planet. I don't even think it's 50 years old or maybe just 50. So how is it different leading a firm of the scale that you're leading between those two regions? Yeah, I think it's it's actually 50 next year. Wow. And I would say that the, the businesses are sort of the same. Obviously, payments in the US is much more mature. And a lot of the growth comes from consolidation in the industry through introducing new products and services. And, and payments is pretty well defined here in Dubai and also across the Middle East and Africa where we work, it's less mature. You think of the fact 
that sort of 85% of all transactions in this part of the world take place in cash. And even here in Dubai, more than 80% of transactions are taking place in cash. So so really the, the growth comes from the shift from cash payments to digital payments displacing cash and that's really how the growth comes along with obviously innovation and bringing in new products and services. I mean Network is the leading payments provider in the Middle East and Africa and I think from memory the company was the first to provide internet commerce I think in the UAE in 1999. You talk about the shift from cash to digital payments. What problems do you solve for your clients? Yeah, we are the only player of scale and the only PAM regional provider of digital payment solutions across the Middle East and Africa. And we operate across the whole value chain of payments of providing issuer solutions and merchant solutions and everything in between. And we're serving more than 150 financial institutions and 67,000 merchants in more than 50 countries. So, you know, we're, we're pretty large. And in simple terms, what we're doing is we're solving our customers' pain points when it comes to payments. You know, payments across those 50 countries is at a very different stage of evolution. Some a lot more mature than others. What is great is that all the markets are growing, all growing at different speeds, and and we're solving their pain points in the payments ecosystem, whether that's on the issuing side of the business or whether that's to the merchant side, either direct to merchants or providing processing services to financial institutions so they can support their merchants. Wonderful. And you talk about all growing at different paces. What are some of the fastest growth regions that that you're most excited about in the network international footprint? I think we're excited about everything. We're everywhere. You know, even here in in the UAE, pre-COVID, business grows quite rapidly, as I said, primarily from the shift from cash to digital payments. We're seeing a lot of activity in Egypt as the government there is on a digitization agenda to drive cash out of the system. We're excited by East Africa, by South Africa, West Africa. It's all it's all exciting. It's all growing rapidly. You've just highlighted a number of really exciting African regions. And having spent a bit of time with Standard Bank and with many friends down there that I met on recent government trade missions, It is one of the most exciting regions. It really is. But you have to know the region intimately. I think just dragging and dropping a business from a different part of the world into that part of the world just doesn't work. And that's why I suspect you recently closed a really exciting acquisition of one of Africa's largest financial technology firms when you acquired the electronic payment solutions provider DPO. So firstly, huge congratulations. Not a small task to do in the middle of a pandemic. A couple of kind of phases to this question, really. Firstly, how is this acquisition going to support your plans for Africa's merchants across the continent? I think, as you quite rightly say, DPO is the largest online commerce platform which provides e-commerce and mobile money capabilities across 19 countries. We believe it's a a strong strategic fit for Network International. We've always been saying the same thing since our IPO 18 months ago. If we were going to do an acquisition, it would have to add capability, product distribution and technology that we didn't necessarily want to build ourselves. DPO 
does that. It consolidates our presence in Africa and it adds capabilities across online, mobile and alternative payments and, you know, bringing us a diverse range of direct merchant and mobile network operators. And, and they've got some cool stuff that they've spent time developing. It's not, you know, it's still relatively small, some of their cool stuff. But it's pretty cool. I don't know DPO well, actually, although I do know the investment group that invested in them prior, APIS Partners. And am I right in thinking they're in 19-ish countries around Africa and have approximately 50,000 merchants? Not in significant numbers, a pretty serious footprint in Africa now. Yeah, no, you're correct. They're headquartered actually in Nairobi, in Kenya. The main office is in Cape Town and they have a bunch of regional offices around the country. They have about 300 people. And yes, you're right. The business has grown rapidly, around 40% CAGA from a revenue perspective over the last few years. And, you know, we're just really excited about the business, not just in respect of them in a, a standalone role, Right, but also the business that they can bring to us and help us grow our portfolio that we already have because we already have 140 banks in 40 countries. And I think it's really one of those acquisitions where sort of one-on-one makes three. And doing a deal in a, in a pandemic is a unique experience in itself. And I guess that you probably were in that kind of mindset where you had one foot on the gas, one on the brake, thinking about how the world pans out, having been in a lockdown environment, people not being able to get out live life, spend money, but at the same time in an environment where people aren't going to be using cash and a real inflection point potentially for digital payments. What were your thoughts as you were going through the deal around moving ahead with it, even though you were in the midst of the pandemic? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess we've had our eye on DPO for a while, so it wasn't. I think it's important to say it wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to the current situation that we found mm-hmm. ourselves in. We, as I said, we've been tracking the company for over a year. We've had some on-off discussions, and then we started to get serious about February, March time, doing, doing due diligence in the middle of a pandemic when there's no travel is, is an interesting challenge, but we were fortunate. Thank goodness for Zoom. And I think actually we got to know the people far better through Zoom than often you do on a, a simple due diligence exercise where you fly in, fly out and spend some time looking at products and technology. And so we were able to talk much more frequently than perhaps we would have done before. We had a great team of advisors helping us, both from a banking perspective and also from a due diligence perspective, a number of whom have offices in those countries so we were able to meet with the people through our advisors and, and also they had extensive vendor due diligence in their due diligence room so yeah i mean it was challenging but it was also fun and you know i think we've always said that just because we're in the middle of a pandemic situation is not a reason to divert yourself away from strategy and i think we're fortunate we have a pretty strong balance sheet and very supportive shareholders that understand that COVID is just a short-term disruption and doesn't take away from the opportunities that exist and and therefore we decided to move ahead. It's a really good point you make about being able to deepen relationships through mediums like Zoom. Uh, Motive Partners portfolio firm Dun & Bradstreet where I'm the international CMO IPO'd on July the 1st and the team were able to do a substantial number of the roadshow meetings virtually. In fact, far more than they ever would have been able to do in that time frame. And that's definitely got to be one of the, the big shifts, one of the big lessons is you can't replace the energy and collaboration of face-to-face meetings. But if you're trying to do volume and you're trying to really get into the detail, you can do a really effective job through Zoom. Simon, you were at the helm of a very large payments business during the last global financial crisis. 
What were some of the biggest lessons that you've learned that you think can be transferred from that time to this time? This is probably my fourth recession. Wow. And they're all different. They all have different causes, different consequences. And I think this is obviously the most severe one. I think the one back in, in 2008 was really related around banks and financial institutions and obviously didn't impact the wider general public as much as this one has. But I, I think the lessons that you can learn from previous are, are, are similar to both, which is, you know, a, it's always important to have a business continuity plan first off, right? You'd be amazed at how many companies I've seen in this environment that perhaps didn't have a continuity of business plan, and that's irrespective of size. You always need one of those and a plan B, and I've learned that over the years. I think it's important to obviously to be agile, and I think, again, that came out of the last financial crisis. It, you know, agility, speed of change is important. I think from a technology perspective, obviously, it's important that you've continued your investment in technology and kept it up to date. And I think what's changed since the last financial crisis is obviously apart from agility and speed of change is the proliferation and diversity of payment methods. Yeah. And, and what has become very important is the omni-channel experience to customers so that, you know, even if the shops are closed or the food stores are closed, they can continue to transact and continue to trade, mm. you know, whether that's online, in-store and in mobile. And that's you know, one of the reasons that, that the DPO acquisition was important to us, particularly in Africa. I mean, all three of those are, are superb points. And the, the last one, you, you just reminded me of something that I read a few weeks ago. In the UK, Sainsbury's has been investing in its e-com strategy for the last few years. And, and they've seen revenues rise from 8% to 15% through the pandemic, which is awesome for them. The flip side of that is Primark, the fast fashion company, who were doing prior to the pandemic 650 million pounds of revenue a month and subsequently since the pandemic have done zero pounds of revenue per month because they don't have any <laughs> online presence. And it, it just begs belief really that an organization of that scale hasn't ever embraced online. I don't get it. And I think this is a perfect inflection point in time where organizations of all shapes and sizes realize that they need to have that online presence, the e-commerce strategy, and ultimately they're going to need a payments provider, aren't they? Agreed. And I think that the two examples you quote are actually quite interesting because Dubai has traditionally been a majority card present environment in respect to payments, whether that's cards or cash. And, and part of that, I guess, is because malls here in Dubai are almost destinations in their own right, particularly mm. in the summer months when they have a lot of activities. But what we saw during the shutdown, March, April, when virtually everything was closed apart from supermarkets and pharmacies, was there was a a demand to move to online and to move to online quickly. And you're right, often these kind of things need compelling events. And, and this was a compelling event. And we've seen online business, if you strip out sort of government and airlines, and you know, our online business through our merchants here has grown about 45% in a few months. We've been able to help our, our customers do that. And so people say to me, well, is this the death of the mall? I say, no, I think it's more a shift to an omni-channel experience so you can still go to the mall, decide what goods and products you want to buy, then go home and think about it in the comfort of your own home. And, and then, you know, utilizing our omni-channel capabilities, shop online or, or on your mobile. 
Yeah. Or you can yeah. do vice versa. You can, you're seeing more click and collect now here in, in this part of the world that didn't exist before. So I think there has been a tipping point. I think this pandemic will accelerate, not just here in the UAE, but across the whole region, the shift from cash to digital payments. I think you're absolutely right. And out of the hottest fires comes the strongest steel. And I'm really looking forward to seeing some of those innovations that emerge. And I don't think it's going to be the end of them all by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think there'll be some cool new innovations. An organization I got to know quite recently called Byhive in Hong Kong, a group of former executives came out of a, a global sourcing business. And they wanted to take the trade show and make it more efficient and create a digital platform for buyers and sellers. Now, the pandemic threw a couple of curveballs at them, but actually really probably has accelerated that shift. And I think we'll see lots of different digital equivalents of physical activities that just present another option to the consumer. It doesn't have to replace one or another. Absolutely agree. Have you heard of Brain Food? It's our weekly newsletter, and it comes out every Sunday morning. It's packed with the best content that we come across on financial services and technology. It contains quotes, articles, events, and it showcases rising fintechs and people in our industry that inspire us. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. I mentioned Dun & Bradstreet and we did our IPO recently on the New York Stock Exchange. You actually led Network International's listing on the London Stock Exchange, which was the largest IPO of 2019. And it really meant that Network International became the largest payments entity on the, on the FTSE 250 index. But you're headquartered in Dubai, and there's deep local market knowledge there, as you sit right in the very center of the payments ecosystem in the MIA region. What were some of the reasons behind listing on the LSE? And, and, and I asked that with true intrigue. As a you know, FIS patriot, I think it's a wonderful place to list, and, and the LSE was lucky to have you. But what were some of those reasons? Thank you. Good question. I, I think that there was really four main reasons. Firstly, we wanted to list somewhere that had a deep experience of payments and payments companies and how they operate. So I guess, therefore, we had a choice of listing in the US or, or listing in the UK. We wanted somewhere that had strong governance and the LSD has tradition, history, generally strong governance. A lot of the funds that invest in us, a lot of our shareholders tend to be emerging market funds and a lot of those funds are run out of London and a lot of those fund holders and institutions again have deep experience of investing in the payments markets and lastly you know when we listed it was all secondary and then if we wanted to raise primary we felt that there was good liquidity available in that market and that was borne out by the recent equity raise that we did to acquire dpo you know the book was covered in less than 30 minutes and more than four times oversubscribed in in the middle of a, a pandemic where You know, what you'd seen previously is is a lot of companies raising equity just to shore up their balance sheets. We were able to raise equity relatively quickly with strong demand for for the acquisition of DPO. If I remember correctly, and I remember talking to Ron, your your chairman on this, and MasterCard invested at the IPO, and and I think quite a sizable amount, 300 or so million. Is there a, a partnership there? A tie, what, what was the strategic rationale for MasterCard? Yeah, you're right. MasterCard, we're a cornerstone investor at IPO. They took a stake of just about 9.9%. I mean, we've been partners with MasterCard for many, many years. As we are with Visa, we 
been traditionally scheme agnostic and, and they, like us, understood that Middle East and Africa is the last market in the world that has yet to undergo this secular shift from cash to digital. They saw the need, like we do, to develop the payments ecosystem and they felt by working more closely with us in a formalised manner, it, it would help develop that ecosystem even more quickly. Amazing. And, and what a wonderful organization to have partnered with you as well. We have a huge amount of respect and admiration for what Ajay and, and Rick and the team have done at MasterCard. We're firm believers in there being opportunities in adversity. And we spent a bit of time talking about a post-COVID world. What, what do you think the world will look like after COVID? And are there any, any specific areas that you think opportunities will lie for businesses and people? Always a difficult question to answer. I think that if I look at us generally as, as humans, we are very adaptable despite what is thrown at us and we quickly get used to new ways of doing things and it has been thus ever through history. I, I think we'll become more risk aware as we go about our daily business and we've already seen that when we, when we look at social distancing. I think that obviously there's a move to flexible working across the globe. I think as a result of that, organisations will become less hierarchical and flatter in structure and more empowering to their people, which I think will make them more agile. And, and I think as a result of this, you know, particularly in my industry, digital payments will accelerate much more quickly. As I said, people don't want to use cash. We're already seeing that from some of the examples I described earlier. We're seeing governments tell banks to put smaller denomination notes in ATMs. And so, yeah, I think the whole shift in this part of the world from cash to digital will, will accelerate. And as we see that, that shift happening, I mean, obviously data plays an enormous role in the digitization of, of any industry and, and particularly the lubricant of all industries, really, with money. How are you guys approaching data and, and does it play a, a big role at, at Network? Yeah, I would say it's it's becoming an increasingly more important part of our business. When I first came, we, we set up a data analytics team to provide data to our customers to help them understand what was happening in their business and so they could make data-driven decisions in respect of whether it's merchants putting out you know, loyalty programs to attract customers in, whether that's merchants seeing how spend differs in their part of the business versus other comparative businesses and, and the same with banks. So it's becoming increasingly more important in our business as we're helping our customers make decisions based on data compared to the way they were doing it before. Thank you. And final question, or maybe a couple final questions, and we're going to deviate away from payments. A question and an area, in fact, I've always been very passionate about talent and talent development. How do you approach that at Network International? You obviously cover many regions, some of which are big expat communities. How do you go about bringing the best talent to the businesses that, that you're leading? That's a great question. You're right. We are a very diversified business. So we've probably just under 1,400 people. And I think we've got something like 45 nationalities in our business. So we're very diverse culturally and from a gender perspective. And I'm a great believer of, of promoting people from within. 
and that's what we try and do. We try and bring in people who aren't necessarily right away the subject matter experts in, in what they do. They may be the number ones or number twos and, and we spend time on developing them and growing them. And if I'm looking for people outside of the organisation, I always have this view that I want to try and hire the smartest people and not be afraid of them being smarter than me and hire people who are good at what perhaps I'm not and have different skill sets and experiences. You know, What I look for in people is whilst qualifications are interesting, I'm more interested in these passion, curiosity and demonstrable track records of success. And that's a, a wonderful approach to talent. I think that the hiring from within is a really, really interesting concept. I was actually thinking about it in the context of sport over the weekend and not all of our, our listeners perhaps will, will appreciate this part, but the cricket world in the UK you get developed by your cricket club and you tend to stay at your cricket club because there are no transfer fees. And I think that's a really important component of that sport versus say football or other sports where there's huge transfer fees and there's not a lot of loyalty and the development programs are perhaps more short-termist. So it's it's wonderful to hear that. Oh, I'd agree. You're right. I think there's a fine line in you want people to be loyal, but people have to have a fulfilling career at the same time. And I think sometimes people outgrow an organisation and then it's, it's appropriate for them to move and you know, they should move with your good wishes and it allows you to to bring fresh people from within the organisation as well. Talking about having a fulfilling career, you're still in the midst of your fulfilling career, but a question I'm always intrigued to ask leaders is, if you could have given yourself a piece of advice mm-hmm. at the start of your career, what would it be if you could go back in time? One is don't be fixated on your career path when you start from school or university or college i think you have to be adaptable and flexible and your careers are not going to necessarily follow the path you thought they would for various reasons yeah i think you have to think that your career is a marathon not a sprint you know i've been at work for maybe 40 years this year so that's like a marathon right so you're always learning and doing new stuff and i think you have to think about that and then think that you have to get promoted every 10 minutes and i think most importantly is find yourself a mentor, right? Preferably someone from outside your organization who can help you talk through problems, issues, things you don't want to talk about, work, how to tackle difficult situations or, or just stuff you want advice on. All of those really resonate with me. Uh, I've had some wonderful mentors in, in my career who've provided just incredible external advice, mm-hmm. that fresh perspective, and some have been very generous with their time. I think the point you make about a career being a marathon, not a sprint, is so important. Everyone is in such a rush all the time in this world. It's important, I think, to embrace the learning as you're learning it, Mm. knowing that you can put it into action at any time further down the line. And I'm at the relative beginning of of my career, so I can uh, certainly take that to, to heart. Simon, huge thank you for joining us today. And I look forward to hopefully having a meal and a drink with you in Dubai soon. And hopefully uh, things just keep on going from strength to strength for you and, and the Network International team. Thanks, Sam. Pleasure to talk to you again. And uh, yeah, hope we'll see each other in person soon. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time.
The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Motive Partners. Motive Partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by Motive Partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.